The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read the first six verses together. As some of you may be aware, the book of Ephesians divides roughly into two parts. The first part goes is from chapters 1, 2, and 3, and ends there with Paul's great prayer, which we spend some time looking at, and then verses 4, 5, and 6 is the second half, and it, it takes up a practical how to live the Christian life um, teaching. So Ephesians chapter 4 begins that section. Let's read together. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Well, let's pray again, shall we, before we go any further. <clears throat> Loving Father, we come before you this morning to seek your help as we would open the Scriptures together. And Father, we pray that you would meet with us in this hour and you would speak to us and teach us your word. And Father, we ask you that you would challenge every heart in the room. Father, I need to be challenged. We all need to be challenged as to how we are living, whether our conduct is pleasing to you or not. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The tailors are not here this morning. You say, where are the tailors? Well, the tailors are off with their grandson, Ben. They're spending some time together as a family. As most of you probably know by now, uh, young Ben is heading into the military on Tuesday morning, I believe at 6 o'clock in the morning, bright and early, he will be uh, inducted or drafted or whatever they call into the military. Once you imagine for a second that Ben shows up in the military, <clears throat> he's been given, excuse me, <coughs> hmm. excuse me, <laughs> he's been given a uniform, he's been given a haircut, he's been given a code of conduct, he's been given all the supplies he needs in order to show up for his new life in the military. And Ben goes in to see the barber and he says, you know, I've been thinking about a new hairstyle for the military. I think the one I've got is just fine. We'll leave it as is. He goes into his, his uh, bunkhouse where all the guys are there and they've got all their bunks and everything is exactly the same and all perfectly done. And Ben says, you know what, I think I want to put my bed the other way. And he picks up his bed and he, he turns it around and he plunks it back down again. He says, you know what, I don't think this uniform thing is, it's really kind of old hat. We don't need uniforms anymore. I think what I'll do is I'll just show up on parade wearing my jeans and my t-shirt and, uh, you know, I'll have some badges about clubs I belong to. I'll, you know, instead of carrying a military code of conduct, I'll carry a Bible and maybe a little booklet instead. Well, Ben goes through with his plan. This is all fictitious, as you probably figured out. He goes through with his plan. He shows up at the first parade and what does the sergeant do to him? 
I couldn't imagine what that sergeant would do to him as he shows up standing there in his jeans and his t-shirt and his hair uncut and he's got a Bible instead of his code of conduct and his rifle is still packed away in its grease somewhere. He is completely out of step with the calling which he has submitted to. You go into the military, they give you the haircut. You don't decide. A friend of mine was asked when he went into the military, would you like your sideburns? And he said, yes. And so the fellow got an envelope and he shaved them into an envelope and said, here you go, and gave him his sideburns. (laughs) You go in there, they give you the clothes to wear, you put them on. They tell you how your bed has to be made and the sheet has to be ironed when you make it and how everything has to be done exactly so. Well, the reality is that Jesus Christ has suffered and died on a cross and called us into a lifestyle. It's not a legalistic lifestyle, but it's a lifestyle that demands a certain type of conduct. And Paul has spent three marvelous incredibly rich, content-packed chapters explaining and expounding the fact that we have been taken out of this world and brought into the family and the kingdom of God. We have been rescued and saved from a lost eternity. And as he moves into the second half of the book to, to explain what it means to live and function as the people of God in a world that wants nothing to do with God, he begins and he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you, I plead with you to walk, that means to live, in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. I want you to notice you got a little uh, note sheet in your uh, bulletin there, the yellow one, and then there is a couple of points we're going to lay out. The first couple will go very quickly because the last one is fairly long. Number one, the example of conduct worthy of the calling. That's Paul's example. Number two, the necessity for conduct worthy of the calling. And thirdly, the calling that demands such a conduct. Not only are we going to look at what that calling is and and what that conduct that we are called to is, we are going to look at how we are to do that because it is a very tall order. We have been called to a very high calling. All of us. Not just pastors, not just elders, not just deacons, not just Sunday school teachers. Not There's no exclusions. We are all together called to this lifestyle, this conduct. First of all, the example of conduct worthy of the calling. Notice Paul says in verse number 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. In the Greek it reads more like this, Therefore I urge you, I, the prisoner of the Lord. So he actually makes the emphasis of his own state and the fact that he is writing this twice in the passage. Our English, because of its awkwardness, we sort of summarize it into one statement. I urge you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you. Paul's own example of conduct is fitting the calling with which he has been called. Paul has left everything behind to follow Jesus Christ. You know the story in the book of Acts, how he goes on the road to um, Damascus, and the Lord meets him there and powerfully changes him, and he goes back to the city, and he's blind in his eyes, and a man comes and anoints his eyes, and he sees, and the Bible talks about how very quickly he goes out and into the synagogues and into the courts, and he begins to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He immediately begins to follow the call. Paul has paid 
a very high price that the book of Philippians chapter 3 tells us this as Paul's own words. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he summarized it all up. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul left it all. He left his lifestyle as a Pharisee. He left his trade as a tent maker, although he went back to it periodically to supply his own needs. He left everything behind. Jesus made a statement that he is not willing to hate his father and his mother and his brother and his sister cannot be my disciple. Paul left all of it behind, his family and everything. Now, I'm not saying that we need to leave our families and abandon our responsibilities, but we need to leave and regard everything else as secondary to following Jesus Christ. That's a high call. That's the call Paul lived out. Paul was hated of men because of his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Romans despised and disregarded him because he chose to worship and serve the one true God of the Jews, a crucified Jewish carpenter, instead of worshiping the whole pantheon of of Roman gods and goddesses. Paul was ultimately condemned and beheaded by the Romans for no crime at all, other than that he followed Jesus Christ. Paul set the example. Jews despise and hate him because he affirmed that Jesus Christ, a carpenter from Nazareth, is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They hated that idea. How could you possibly think that a carpenter's son from Nazareth, he had a sketchy background and past. There was always doubts about what happened in his birth. How could you possibly believe that he's the Messiah? And Paul stood his ground and believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jews hated him. Forty of them committed themselves to a vow that they wouldn't eat or drink until they saw him dead. And Paul lived on for a couple years beyond that. We don't know what happened to those men. But they hated him. The Greeks despised and scorned him because he spoke of the foolishness of the cross as God's single powerful means of salvation and knowing of God. Paul has the experience, the maturity, and the wisdom to call us, to plead with us, to follow and imitate his example. He actually writes in the book of Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like his master and savior, Paul has endured suffering for the sake of Christ who called him. The Bible in 2 Corinthians 11 sketched out this long, detailed list of all the things that Paul has suffered for following Christ. Excessive labors, imprisonments, beaten times without number. Five times he received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead. Shipwrecked, dangers here and dangers there. Not to mention the daily pressure of all the churches that he had planted and was ministering to and praying for and working with. He wasn't living a lush lifestyle in some palace. Even as he penned the letter to the Ephesians, he's writing from prison. 
They weren't prisons like today with TV sets and warmth and color and light. They were t- prisons which basically were holes in the ground with stones to make a doorway. This is what Paul was living out. Paul is not calling us to an ideal which he had never achieved or lived. Paul is calling us to follow the example that he has left, that has left him writing to them from a prison cell. He has the experience, the maturity, and the wisdom to call us to follow his example. Paul's own goal in life was to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said that I may know him and that I may share in what he suffered. I want to be so much like my Savior that when they call me and leave me out, I will suffer like he did to know him a little more. You all know the story of Peter and his wife when they were martyred. Peter said, I'm not worthy to be martyred like my Lord Jesus. You martyred me upside down on my cross. Horrific way to die. And Peter had to listen and watch as his wife was first crucified before his own eyes. And he had to wait until she died before they crucified him. And legend has it that Peter stood beside her cross and spoke up to her the whole time that she was dying. Unimaginable death. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. This was the conduct that they had been called to. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the conduct that we have been called to. To live our lives for Jesus Christ no matter what the cost or the price. The problem with us, the problem with the church in the 21st century, no less the 20th century, is we have sold the idea that you can come exactly as you are and you can stay exactly as you are and you can live a Christ-less Christianity that is utterly devoid of the cost that we must pay. And Paul gets through this great theme of our salvation and says, listen, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, to, to live a life, to live a conduct that is worthy, that is fitting of the calling with which you have been called. And that's a call for us, all of us in this church, to live a life that is fitting with the calling we have been called to. Notice, secondly, the necessity for conduct that's worthy of the calling. He says, I urge you. He doesn't say, I suggest. He doesn't say, you know what, uh, Ephesians and uh, Nobaparkians, it's a really good idea if you think about this. He says, I urge you. It's the very same word he uses in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to live your, offer your bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. It's the same pleading. There's a sense of urgency and importance in his voice and his pen as he writes. I implore you to live this. Why should we listen to this? Why not go to a church where they tell you, you know, you can be healthy and wealthy and wise and you can have your best life now and you can have all these wonderful things and, you know, if, if you just, you know, it's all yours. God wants you to... I'll do it in the accent. God wants you to be happy and wealthy and wise and, and, and all that stuff. I just cringe. You're telling me that Jesus Christ despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, died just so we could be happy and healthy and wealthy? That's ridiculous. He's saying that all these men throughout history who suffered and died horrific deaths for their testimony for Christ did it needlessly and they could have been happy and healthy and wealthy and all that. 
nonsense? No. There's an urgency. Our call together as the church of Jesus Christ, we are God the Father's family. And there is a family image that we are expected to maintain. It is required that we conduct ourselves according to the Father's family image. It's required that we conduct ourselves to honor the Father's name. They talk about in the Old Testament about don't take the Lord's name in vain. What does that mean? Don't swear, oh my God. I heard a Jewish man today say that that Christian understanding is completely wrong. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is don't carry the Lord's name in a vain way. In other words, you call yourself a Christian and you live a life that is absolutely ungodly and full of the world. You are, in effect, taking God's name in vain. We are called to a conduct that honors and glorifies the name of our Heavenly Father. We are also the Son's bride and the Son's body. We're the body of Christ. Is what the church means. And as that body, we are required and it's necessary that we conduct ourselves with the purity of a bride. We are to call, sorry, we are called, I'll try it again. We are called and it is necessary that we conduct ourselves in conformity to our head, who is Christ. We are also God, the Holy Spirit's temple. This body, and I don't mean this building, but all of us as believers in Jesus Christ come together. We are the church at Noble Park. And we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills and dwells us, and we are to be a fitting temple for His infilling. That requires a conduct that is fitting with the holiness of God. You say, that's a very high call you're putting on us. You're right. Hey, Nelson, that's an impossible call. You're absolutely right. It is an impossible call. But you know what? God has provided a way that we would keep that calling, and we're going to see it to the end. So stay with me. Don't wander off. Okay? We are God's Spirit's holy temple. It's required. It's a delight to our own souls that we conduct ourselves in an ongoing worship of God. I hope you don't come here just to worship. I hope you don't just worship when you're here. I hope your whole life is lived out as an ongoing expression of worship to God. And that worship requires a conduct that is fitting to the calling you have received and honors Him. In everything you do, we are called and free to live in ceaseless worship and praise of God all day long in all that we do. But that requires a conduct that's pleasing to God. Notice thirdly, the biggest part of our message, the calling that demands such a worthy conduct. Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What does he mean by the word calling? What does he mean? He used it in a couple different ways in his writings. He often writes at the beginning of a letter, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, or Paul called to be an apostle. So there is a sense in which calling has the idea of vocation that someone is called by God into. I believe with all my heart that God called me to preach the Bible and called me to pastor churches. That's why I'm here. Obedience to that call. But the calling sense that Paul uses on a much bigger level has the idea of salvation. Okay, we are called to salvation. A number of questions we can ask that need to be answered. Who called us? 
who called you to salvation. Somebody walking down Burke Street, shouting out at passerbyers, follow me to the ends of the earth. Would you follow him? Probably not. <laughs> Probably kind of work my way around him. It makes you don't, you know, lock eyes with the guy. He might not be mentally all there. Sad for him. But that happens. And you say, well, why wouldn't you follow him? What authority does that man walking down Burke Street shouting at the passerbys to follow him to the ends of the earth? He has no authority whatsoever to make that call, and we have no obligation to keep it. But the caller in our salvation is God himself. In that case, we are most certainly obligated to answer that call, and we're very wise to obey that call. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we, that's Paul, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are, listen, the called of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying, listen, we have received grace to go out and call others to obedience to Christ. And you living in Rome who have heard the gospel and responded to that call, you are the called of Jesus Christ. Or to put it the other way around, you are Jesus Christ's called ones. We here have been called by God to follow him. He has the ultimate authority. In Matthew 9, verse 9, Jesus called Matthew to follow him. And it was a powerful, authoritative call. Matthew put down his, um, no, he didn't put down. He left his tax collector's booth and followed Jesus. In Mark 1, Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him. They put down their nets, they got out of the boat, and they followed Jesus. He called them and they followed. In Mark 8, 34 to 38, which we'll look at a little bit later, Jesus extended that call to anyone who would follow him, and he gave us the core teaching for discipleship. And the answer is this. Who called us? Jesus Christ himself called us to follow him. And that's an authoritative call that we have heard and responded to. Second question, what are we called into? Okay, he calls us. Well, where are we going? Well, the answer is found in the Bible again. We're called into a kingdom relationship with God through Christ. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11 to 12, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that, listen to this, you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Jesus called us to follow him. But he didn't just call us to follow him aimlessly wandering all over the world and all over the universe. He called us to follow him and go into the kingdom with him. We've been called into a kingdom. In Matthew 28, you know, the great story of the commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, teach them all the things I've told you. What's he called us to? He called us into the kingdom as his disciples. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. If you're not living as a disciple, I have reason to doubt your affirmation of faith. 
Because the call to be saved, the call to follow Jesus is a call into discipleship and into a submission and a walking with Christ. That's what it is. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, the Bible says that God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, we're not called into a kingdom as His disciples with Him as a far off king that we never see nor hear nor talk to. We just hear great things about Him. The reality is that you and I, this is great. We were called into a relationship, a fellowship with Christ. What he's been praying about in Ephesians 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's that fellowship. And we're called into that kingdom relationship. We're part of the kingdom of God. We're called in as his disciples and we're called to have fellowship and relationship and communion with Jesus Christ. You are called into the deepest relationship humanly conceivable by man to be a part of. And God done it. He was the one who called you. Calls you into the kingdom as his subjects. He called you into discipleship with Christ as our Lord and Master. He called us into fellowship with God through Christ and the Spirit. How are we called? To the gospel. I listened to a message in the way here this morning. And um, the fellow was saying, isn't it interesting that Paul gets all the way through the book of Corinthians in chapter 15, the very end. And you know what he does? I proclaim to you the gospel. You think, hey, Paul, you've been telling the gospel for quite some time now. You probably don't have to recap that. They probably know that, okay. And you know, we think, we tend to think, hey, the gospel is just kind of like the, the beginning. It's the baby talk of Christianity. You know, you give them the story of Jesus on the cross, and you give them the story of faith and repentance, and you give them the story about following Jesus. And once you kind of get beyond that simple stuff, you move into the really good deep stuff like Romans and Revelation. And the answer is no, it's not. The really deep stuff is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were called into that relationship through the preaching of the gospel of God's grace. Whether it's two moms sitting down at a kitchen table with a cup of tea and some bickies and sharing the gospel back and forth. And God uses the speaking of one to call the other into a relationship with himself. Whether it's a Bible study in the back room of a factory where men sitting around in their rough working clothes and Bibles open and one shares the simple story of the gospel or it's in a place like this or it's in a stadium or wherever it is, God uses the preaching of the gospel by faithful men and women to call us in that. That's how we're called. So we're called by God. We're called into a kingdom as disciples, into a relationship with Christ, we're called through the preaching of the gospel. Does God ever back off on his call? Does God ever say, you know what? I've been tolerating Nelson for long enough. I've had enough. Get rid of him. Never. The Bible says that his callings, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He calls you through the gospel he will not, he cannot undo that call. Because the moment he makes that call, he reaches down to your life and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes that which is dead to be alive. In order for him to revoke that call, he has to reach down and make that which is alive and dead and turn it off. And the Bible never, 
ever describes that. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you can lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved to all of eternity. Because it is the power of God that makes us alive. We're called irrevocably. I want to move on. We're called by God through the gospel of His grace into a kingdom, into discipleship, into a fellowship relationship with God Himself. And what does that calling, that require or demand of us? And before we go any further, because there's a whole list of them, and you can see them on your note sheet there, I want to make this very, very clear. We're not called, and these conducts are not prerequisites to getting in. You know what I mean by prerequisite? I'm sure you all do. You're, you're smarter than me anyway. Uh, you know when they go to the ride the, the, on the big P&E? Oh, not P&E. You don't have it here. You go to the Gold Coast, right? And you go on the amusement parks. They have all the rides out there, the ones that go whipping around and spin you backwards and throw you over and all that and make you want to be sick. Usually they have at the beginning of the ride a little sign that says, you must be this tall to get in, Right? And so the little kid, you always see him there, and he's got like his tallest shoes on, and he's trying to get as tall as he can to be big enough to get on the ride. We all know the kid can survive the ride ten times easier than the old adults can, right? But you have to be this big. Is this calling that Paul is going to lay out for us, is he saying to us, listen, unless you live all these things out, one after the other, unless you keep them all perfectly, you're not called? That is not what he's saying. We are called into the kingdom. We're called as his disciples. We're called to do as disciples these things. Okay, so don't make that mistake. It's not the conduct that qualifies us for the call. The call qualifies us for the conduct. It works the other way around. Make sense? Good. Okay, we're called in. I think there's seven things on your list. We're going to go through them fairly quickly. What are we called to do? What's this conduct that we're called to be as a part and parcel of the call to be disciples of Christ? We're called, first of all, to know Christ Jesus, which is eternal life. Uh, John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In 1 Timothy six twelve, he says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession. In John 20 and verse 31, the Bible says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you have life in His name. We're called to have eternal life. And the conduct we're to live is that life that we've been called to. See, how does that work? That life, that eternal life, is fellowship, is relationship with Jesus. So once you've been introduced to Jesus through the gospel, and we've come to know him, we're called to live a life that gets to know him deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper for the whole extent of our life and all through eternity. Secondly, we're called to freedom from sin. We talked this morning about the demoniac of the Gerasenes. And he was set free from his chains. He was set free from his screaming and gnashing and cutting himself. He set free from his wild behavior possessed by those demons. You and I have been set free from slavery to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. It no longer has power over you. If you know and believe Jesus Christ, that is true of you. The power of sin is broken in your life. 
Bible says in Galatians 5 verse 4, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't be enslaved to religious ideas. That's what he's saying there. Don't be enslaved to anything. Occasionally I meet uh, people who talk about smoking. And they say, oh, smoking is a terrible sin. And I say, well, it's not a smoke to smoke a cigarette. not a sin to smoke a cigarette. They said, are you saying it's okay? And I'm saying, no, it's not okay for a number of reasons. Number one, it's terribly bad for your health. It'll kill you quickly. But beyond that, the addiction is slavery. And if you're in slavery to anything of any kind... That's a problem, spiritually, because Christ set us free from those things. One of my Christian friends always comments, oh, what about uh, slavery to food, Nels? And he points to me, points right about here for some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> what about slavery to that? And I said, you know what, you're absolutely right. I'm on a diet. Oh, my goodness. Low carb, you know, eating green things with no taste, no stuff on it to lose weight. And you know I discovered? It isn't what I'm eating that's the problem. It's that constant, oh, you know, I need a coffee. Well, if I got a coffee, I got to have something to put in the other hand. So I, I, a bicky always fits nicely in your hand when you got a coffee cup in the other, right? And so you got a coffee and a bicky going. If you know me, I drink lots of coffee. So ergo, there's lots of cookies to go with lots of the coffee. It's slavery. I've allowed myself to become a slave to something that now exerts a control over me. And we all we laugh about it and joke about it. And it is funny a little bit. But you know what? Jesus Christ set us free from slavery to all of those things. And you can expand that out to slavery to sex, slavery to drugs, slavery to alcohol, slavery to cigarettes, slavery to... Internet, slavery to shopping, slavery to all kinds of things. We're set free. We're called to a conduct that's to be free from slavery to those things. We have been set free. And Paul says, listen, in verse 5, sorry, verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We've been set free from the unbearable demands of the holy law of God. Don't go looking to be imprisoned to again, to that again. We've been set free from slavery to sin. Don't go back to it. We've been called to freedom, to use that freedom we have been given to serve one another, to love one another. Thirdly, we've been called to peace with God and with each other. Romans 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3 verse 15, the Bible says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. We're called as the body of Christ to be in peace, to enjoy that peace we have with God. We're also called to be in peace, at peace with each other. What betrays a false confession any more than somebody in the fellowship that cannot be at peace with other people? Always making war, always making fights, always stirring things up, always making difficulty. 
That's a sure sign that that person does not have peace with God because they're looking to make war with everybody else at the same time. We're called to peace. Peace with each other. To strive together to be at peace with one another. What a great tragedy when news gets splashed across the newspapers and the internet uh, pages. Churches at war with one another. I saw a TV uh, footage, a clipping. A uh, church was in a bit of a dispute over something really silly. And one of the pastors out in the front lot of the church, and he's talking to the reporters, and one of the other elders came up, and as he walked by, he just, boo, he punched the guy as he walked by. And you see the elders, the pastor's head disappear, and this fist come flying through the TV screen. And we think, oh, what kind of church? And you know, before we get too smug about that, That could happen here. By God's grace, I hope and pray it never happens here. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we've been called to peace. We're to conduct ourselves in a peaceful manner with one another. We're to strive as much as it remains within us to be at peace with each other. To not go stirring up fights and causing dissensions and wars. In fact, it's one of those striking things about the New Testament. You know the whole story of church discipline. There's stages that Jesus laid out in Matthew 18, how we go through for church discipline. There is one place in the Bible that allows us to go around that. Somebody who is dissentious or divisive after two warnings can be asked to leave the church. That's a very, very serious thing. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel walking through the wilderness. Grumblers and complainers that sowed dissension. You see the judgment of God fall upon Israel for one sin after another. And as adultery and idolatry, 14,000 died. Grumbling and dissension, 23,000 died. That shows you how much God hates that sort of behavior. Divisions and dissensions, brothers and sisters, we were called to be at peace with one another. We're called to strive with whatever we have in us, the power of the Holy Spirit, to be at peace, to get along. Moving on, we're called to be holy. First Peter 1, 14 and 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What's the word saints mean? You ever wondered? What does that mean? It's a Bible word we use all the time, talk about the saints gathered and all this sort of thing, when the saints go marching in. What does it mean? It actually means one's called to be holy. It's exactly what it means. We are being called to be holy as God is holy. That's our conduct. We're to live our lives in purity before the Lord, not allowing sin to defile us. There's more. We're called to suffering. In 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving example to follow in His steps. Guess what? Just like Paul who says that I may know him and the fellowship, the sharing in his sufferings, you and I, brothers and sisters, have been called to suffer for Christ. It has been granted to you, Paul said, I believe it's in Colossians, not only to believe in him. No, Philippians 1.29 says it's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name. To suffer. 
That's a calling we have received from God. And the last one, of course, is the one that really sums them all up, doesn't it? We're called to love. A couple of us were praying earlier this morning in the back room there. By the way, in case you didn't know, there is a prayer meeting that everybody is invited to be at at 9.30 in that room behind the sound desk back there. to Come and pray for this service and come and pray for each other. And we were meditating in prayer on the love of God. We have been called above and beyond everything else to love. Jesus said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and with your neighbor as yourself. You shall love. Matthew 5.43, he said, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. In John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. We've been called to that. And when I said earlier this this is a conduct that's impossible, I was sitting in my study yesterday working through this and laying it all out and going, that's impossible. I can almost hear some of the minds of the people in the church spinning going, you got to be kidding. You can't be serious. All this stuff that you're telling us we have to do, this conduct we're called to, newsflash, this is not all of it. There's more. You say, how is that possible? How is it that we can live? How is it that we can conduct ourselves in a manner that is fitting with the calling with which we have been called? And the answer is, it is impossible on our own. There's no way. But listen, I want you to listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 36. If you flip your note sheet over, there's a bit on the back there. You can see there as well. Ezekiel 36, the Bible says this. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes or my ways. How do we do this? power of the Spirit of God that seals every believer and fills us as we go through this life, it is the only way. Think about all those things we were talking about. To know Christ, to be at peace, to be holy, to follow Him, to suffer for Him, to love Him. Even one of those things is impossible in our own strength. We can't do it. But Paul makes it absolutely clear as you read Romans chapter 8 and you read the book of Ephesians and 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, we're to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? What does he mean when he says walk in the Spirit? Galatians 5, 16 to 18 says this, But I say, that's Paul, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Galatians 5.25 If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. So put all those things together. 
He will give us a new heart. He will put His Spirit within us. He will cause us to walk in His ways. He will, we are called to walk by His Spirit. We're called to be led by the Spirit. And we're called to live by the Spirit. How do all those things work? Because you know what? My flesh, when someone does something to me that I don't like, peace is not what comes to mind, I'll tell you. And there are some times when I look around at some of the enemies of the cross, those who take the lives of believers on far-off lands, and my first thought is to get an AK-47 and go over and teach them a lesson, not to love them. And my flesh wars. We're called to freedom, not slavery. And my flesh wars and says, I want to fill my flesh with more hot cross buns and cookies than any other man should normally eat. My flesh rises up and pounds in opposition against the Spirit of God. That's That's what Paul's talking about. So how, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to live as believers in Christ in the power of the Spirit. We're called to walk by the Spirit. So how do we do that? If you walk out of here and I don't tell you the answer to that question, shoot me because I've made a big mistake. We need to know how it is. We know, we absolutely convince that the Scriptures are the written words of the Spirit of God that He inspired men to write. Don't go looking for a new word from God unless you have mastered to the nth degree the one you already have. Okay, Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ make a mistake. We're looking for a new word from God. Have you mastered the one He already gave you? No. Then go master this one first. Walking in the Spirit, living according to the Spirit of God, first of all is this. We read what He wrote. We listen. We strive. You open the Word of God and you hit like Ecclesiastes or you hit uh, Leviticus and you go, I don't know how to make sense of this. Here's the wonderful thing. The one that wrote it seals you and fills you and is with you as you open the pages. So you start reading. Well, there was Ecclesiastes right there. You start reading some passage and you go, I don't understand, Lord. And there are times when I open my Bible and I literally say, Lord, tell me a story. Lord, teach me what your word has to say. Show me the Lord Jesus Christ in your word. Walking in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, starts with reading and learning and understanding what He has said. The second thing is this. Maintaining a state of ongoing prayerfulness. It starts with a regular time of prayer. Don't tell me you walk through your life that you pray as you go and as God leads you because unless you have a set time of prayer, that will almost never happen. It's wishful thinking. Start off with a set time of prayer, whether it's five minutes. You get your car to work five minutes early, you you turn off the lights, you close the doors, roll up the windows, and you spend five concerted minutes in prayer. And then as you go through your day, you strive to maintain that fellowship with you and God and the Holy Spirit in prayer all through your day. Take the Word of God. Do you know the Bible says more about memorizing and meditating than it ever says about reading? Oh, that was amazing. I heard that. I just found out the other day. I was like, wow, that's cool. I never knew that. 
I make a big harping on read the Bible. And in our day and age when, in which 99% of us are literate and we can read the Bible, that's not a problem. In the day that it was written, about 25% of the population were literate and could read. The rest of them had to hear it and memorize as they heard it so that they could meditate on it. So the Bible makes a lot more about memorizing and meditating to get the facts out, to get the, the truth into here. But you know the wonderful thing is? When we read and memorize, and I use my mouth, meditate, because it means to chew over. That's what meditate means. When you put these together, it imprisons and impresses and weighs the Scriptures on our hearts. Going through our day, maintaining that prayerfulness as we walk with the Lord, we're constantly seeking, Lord, how do I respond? Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, where would you have me go? Lord, how would you have me respond to this obnoxious person that I just want to punch his lights out? And I know I'm not supposed to because you said not to do that, so I won't. That happens. Right? I'm, I'm, I am just as... I'm just growing like you are. But we walk by the Spirit. That's how we conduct ourselves in a manner that's fitting with the calling which we have received. You have been called to a high calling, brothers and sisters, and so have I. But you know, one of my questions I'm, I'm compelled to answer is this. Sitting in this church week after week, singing the songs, praying the prayers, being a part of the church, even contributing your finances into the, the little bag as it goes by, does not make you a Christian. It does not mean that you have in fact responded to the call of the gospel. Do you love God? That's my first question. I think he, most of us would say, yeah, you know, God is pretty amazing. It's not hard to love God. Let me ask you another question. Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin as much as God hates it? Because one of the marks of a believer, one of the ways that we know that we're filled with the Spirit of God is an internal hatred of sin and a craving to be like Jesus and to walk like Him and to live like Him. Do you hate sin? Do you love God with all your heart? Have you heard the call that says, Trust me, turn away from your sin, and come and follow me? If your answer is absolutely yes, and you know. There's a story in the Bible, I mentioned it before, about the, the four men that brought the, the paralytic to Jesus. And the Bible says that he saw their faith, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And you know the reality is, in a church, in a Christian culture, I use that term very loosely, in a culture where Christianity has been tolerated for a long time, it is possible to go to church every Sunday and to do, put the church person on. You know, you got the big happy smile, you carry a good-sized Bible, you know all the hymns, you can pray all the prayers... You can talk about faith in God and you can talk about walking with the Lord and you can talk about living for His kingdom and you can put all of it on just like you pick up a mask and put on your face. 
And everybody in the room can be fooled. But notice what Mark wrote. Jesus saw their faith. He alone recognized it as real. Paul is saying, I'm calling you as Christians to a conduct fitting to your calling. For some of you, the first step is recognizing whether or not you have actually responded to that call and trusted Christ and hated sin and wanted to get rid of it with all your worth. Crying out to God that you would be like Jesus and walk with him. It's got to start there. Trying to do all these things, having never responded to the call, you will become the greatest Pharisee that ever walked. Men may revere you for your great Christianity, your great religion. But at the end of the day, when you stand before Christ, and He alone can see into the heart, and He alone... There are some who will come on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not dance in the streets for you? Did we not preach the gospel? Did we not raise the dead and, and, and cast out spirits in your name? Some of us will come, Lord, Lord, I went to church for 50 years. I gave 15%. I gave more than everybody else in my income. You know, I went on mission trips. You know, I memorized great passages of the Bible. You know, I did this, that, and the other thing. And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. In your heart of hearts, as you're sitting here this morning, we are almost done. But as you're sitting here, as we're closing, first question Have you responded to the call of the gospel? Do you love God and do you hate sin with a passion? Respond to that call, you step in behind Christ and begin to follow Him. And that call takes you into a conduct that is hard. But the wonderful thing is He has filled you with His Spirit. He has sealed you with His Spirit. He has given you the words of the Spirit of God and calls you to walk with Him in the power of the Spirit, according to these words, and all of a sudden, conduct fitting with Christ will become part of your life because the Spirit will begin to bring it out of you. Does that make sense? All right.